So I guess I wanted to start out like this and just say that I signed my first six-month contract with Colin at the end of November 2021. So I've been on the platform for a little over a year and had a chance to observe and think about a little what seems to be working and what doesn't. I recently moved to Mexico, so I spent all morning hearing people say Feliz Nuevo Año. And at this point, I feel borderline confident that I'm even saying it right, and it's not actually supposed to be Feliz Año Nuevo, which it might be, but let's run with Feliz Nuevo Año, Feliz Nuevo Año. Okay, uh, so I want to start taking calls ideally within the first two or three minutes of today's show, uh, since this is supposed to be an AMA. So if you want to call in, just go for it and get in the caller queue right now, and I'll stay, start taking calls very, very quickly. But meanwhile, I did just want to say a few things about how I want to see the show changing in 2023. So as I was just saying, I started the show um, in November, 2021. So I've been on here for a little over a year and gotten what I hope is a little bit of a sense of what works and what doesn't. And it seems to me that either me monologuing and then taking a few calls at the end or having a guest on and having the same conversation I'd have with them on GTAA on YouTube, except that we take a few calls at the end, is either way a bit of a waste of the platform because this should really be caller-driven. So the way I'd like this to work, ideally, is that at the beginning of every episode, there are just a few minutes of me talking about what's on my mind, like I'm doing right now or me and the guest doing it if I have a guest, and then very quickly, like the first five to 10 minutes, it transitions to taking calls. But that only works if people know when the show's going to be, if they have regular, reliable expectations rather than just doing it haphazardly the way I've been doing it, uh, so they know how to tune in without having necessarily happened to see a, hey, I'm about to go live on call-in post on social media or on my Patreon. So here's how things are going to work starting tomorrow, really starting today, uh, there's going to be a call-in every day at 4 p.m. Uh, here on the West Coast, so 7 if you're in uh, the Eastern time zone. So people will know without having seen a post that this is when it is going to be every day. Um, and so then I'll do what I did today because I also have not been great about that, open up the room to let people trickle in for just a few minutes, and then we'll get started by 4 or 4.05 uh, and again, I'm going to go to calls very, very quickly. Now, obviously, there are going to be days, um, sometimes whole series of days, when I can't do it at all. Um, you know, sometimes, every once in a while, going to have to not be able to do it at that particular time. Going to have to switch it up. I've actually got one of those coming up on Tuesday because I'm going to have uh, Bronco Barkshire. Blah. Bronco Marchetich and Glenn Greenwald on to sort of talk out some stuff they were arguing about on Twitter about um, you know what uh, what Glenn called ST is the only time that worked for everybody. So that's when we're going to be doing it on Tuesday. The I started cutting it out was that on Tuesday already, there's going to have to be an exception to this 4 p.m. West Coast, 7 p.m. East Coast start time. Um, 
because I appreciate that, Chase, uh, because I'm going to be hosting one of these with uh, Glenn Greenwald and Bracco Marchetich because uh, the two of them were arguing on Twitter about some, you know, some of Glenn's problems with what he calls the Bernie AOC left. And Bronco was pushing back against that. And I said, look, I can't pretend to be neutral about this. I'm very much on uh, team Bronco on the substance of the issue, but I think I can host a respectful conversation with the two of you want to come on and argue about it on my college show. So uh, we're going to be doing that on Tuesday, well, morning in my time zone since I'm on the West Coast now. So it's going to be 9 a.m., uh, West Coast, New East Coast uh, on Tuesday, but that is, I hope, going to be a rare exception. Generally speaking, like I said, it's going to be uh, 4 p.m. West Coast, 7 p.m. East Coast every single day, unless I just post something and I say, hey, sorry, I'm going to be traveling for the next three days, no Collins until you know Thursday or whatever, uh, in which case... Um, you know, I'll put that on social media so people can can check and they know there's not going to be one. But the whole point of the regular predictable starting time is I hope uh, that, you know, people know to tune in for it. And so um, obviously I know this is a relatively small platform um, and, you know, don't expect massive turnout for any of these. I think that's just not, you know, not in the cards right now. But that, you know, we, we get a good enough core group of people calling in that it really can be. Uh, collar driven in the way that I would like it to be, or at least that's how we're going to start out uh, this Nuevo Año of 2023. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it works. And, you know, that's how it's going to work at least until further notice. Okay. Meanwhile, though, this is an AMA. So let's, uh, let's get some calls in here. What do, uh, what do, you know, instead of just me flattering on about whatever's on my mind, I want everybody to call in and let me know, what is on your mind? So, Chase, what do you got for me? Hey, Ben. How you doing? I'm actually pretty good. How are you? Uh, well, uh, I, caught, I caught COVID over Christmas, so that uh, was an unexpected present. Uh, but uh, other than that, I'm doing okay. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, I've, I've been very lucky. I've only had COVID once. Uh James O'Keefe gave it to me last summer in New York, or possibly somebody else, but I prefer to blame James. Yeah, I think my father was patient zero on this occasion. This is my first. This is my first round. I had a, like a three-year streak going potentially, uh, and and he fucked it up here in the last week. Uh, but um, but I uh, yeah, I wanted to um, actually. I, I didn't. I didn't know you moved to Mexico. Uh, what what brought that on? Uh, yeah, so I moved to, uh, to Mexico and I should say not exactly deep into Mexico. I'm, I'm in Rosarito. It's, it's, uh, in, in a world without the border, it would essentially, you know, probably be absorbed into the, uh, greater San Diego suburbs. Okay. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I basically for, you know, uh, what I'm doing right now, I can do from wherever for, you know, for personal reasons I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to change of scene for a little while, and uh, a good friend of mine lives down here. And when I was talking about this with him a couple of months ago, he was like, "Hey, the unit a couple of wife of mine is uh, is is kind of you know is about to go open. If you want me to get you in touch with the landlady, so um, there you have it. So uh, so I I am uh, I'm on about day thirty of Duolingo. I do not speak very much Spanish yet, but I'm working <laughs> on it. Yeah, I um, uh, coincidentally I ended up moving to the other side of California. Um, this last month, so uh, uh, I'm adjusting to the the 
beautiful weather in the new time zone as well. Um, but yeah, I, my, I guess my only real question is, um, I've been reading a lot on, um, on care ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I've been really actually impressed with, uh, some of the work being done there. And I, I was wondering if you were familiar with that literature at all. And if, um, uh, you had any thoughts to the approach that, uh, uh, care ethics and sort of the feminist critique of, mm. of post-war, um, moral philosophy that, uh, was involved in that. I mean, it, it also has other, uh, draws on other sources. I know there's, um, actually, uh, uh, quite a, um, religious contribution to care ethics as well, not just a feminist one, but, um, yeah. Yeah. I'm more familiar with the feminist than the religious, uh, stuff I should say in advance, but just out of curiosity, who have you been reading? Um, I'm actually picked up a collection here. So not any one author, but, um, it's called, uh, care ethics in a precarity, something like, or age of precarity. Um, sorry, it's not, it's not in sight right now. Um, but there's that. And there's also a book, uh, uh, called on caring by, I want to say Milton Mayeroff. It's a really old book, like nearly forgotten. That was written in the seventies, but um, I started reading that, and I've been really impressed with that. I'm, I'm kind of like, I'm kind of sad that that book, um, not only is it more known, I think it's out of print at this point. Yeah, uh, so I am. I am somewhat familiar. So uh, I, I did my PhD at the University of Miami, where one uh, professor, Michael Floyd, was a big philosopher. Uh, he, uh, he's been the bunch of this. And so there's a sort of, uh, tradition of, uh, I guess, line of thought going through, I guess, Carol Gilligan to, to Sloan and other people I'm not familiar with, but that I, I was exposed to a fair amount, uh, while I was there. And I, I have to say, I, I've actually probably gotten more sympathetic to it in the years since I was, I was around it the, uh, the most. Um, but, uh, so, I think you cut out again. The particular version of it that I was exposed to. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much this is going to be, uh, kind of relevant to, to the reading you're doing or, you know, cause, cause I mean, there are probably a bunch of authors. I just, I just don't know. Right. And, and they might be saying something slightly different, but, um, you know, so, so like, again, the stuff I'm familiar with, so there's this, there's this, classic book called uh in a different voice by carol gilligan where she'll um she says that well there are these two ways of um of thinking about uh thinking about ethics there's you know the ethics of of justice and uh and the ethics of care and uh you know Certainly Gilligan's claim is is gendered you know she thinks that that women are more likely to think about uh justice in terms of care and so it's a sort of you know male dominated uh way that uh people are thinking about it that's all about questions about justice but um you know and, and i'm actually not totally sold on that part in a certain way because uh some of the examples that she gives at least that are supposed to motivate it i'm not uh you know i'm, I'm not really sure that sure that they show what they you know, she thinks they show, but that's like maybe not the most interesting part of it anyway, right? Like, you right. know, kind of, kind of forget forget the gender part for a second and just like, okay, is there something to this? And right. and I think I think there is. Uh, I think that like what 
you know, again, at least the version of the thought that I'm the most familiar with uh, kind of gets down to is a sort of a particular version of virtue ethics, maybe that is very focused on like uh, empathy and, uh, and, and concern for people. And, you know, and, and I should say there's also a big split in how people think about this because the original Carol Gilligan thing and some of oh, – I have this entire time we've been talking about this. There's another author I have been driving myself crazy trying to remember. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, this other person, this other woman I don't remember, uh, you know, a lot of their original stuff was like they were pluralists about ethics. In other words, they, they thought that there's – well, uh, you need both. There's, there's sort of um, – there's an ethics of care that's important for certain kinds of context and there's ethics of justice that's important for other contexts. So it's not that like people, when they think about, you know, ethics in the male identified way and the original Gilligan uh, view uh, in terms of justice, it's not like that's wrong. It's just incomplete. Uh, you, you also need this, this other thing. So like there's a version of this thought that you might have that's like uh, Michael Walter uh, has this whole thing about spheres of of justice, I guess, is what I, is I think the original phrase that he used, where it's like, well, there are just different kinds of spheres of human activity for which like different uh, moral frameworks are sort of appropriate, and so there's like a version of this you could have. Now, Sloat um, ended up being like a modist about this, saying, no, 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 actually, this is wrong because um, you know. Basically, his his claim is well these because they can contradict each other that the that you can have uh, you can come to a sort of opposite conclusion uh, if you're coming from one or the other of these perspectives. So so he thinks you have to you have to pick. And ultimately, his view is that you can have this whole sort of view of um, like all of these like much bigger uh, like moral and even political questions. You know that you can uh, that you can come to your your preferred conclusion based on this care ethics, which at least in his hands is this kind of um, version of virtue ethics that's that's very that's like all about empathy. And um and I guess I should say just quickly before throwing it back to you, I I think my um I think there are like maybe a couple of issues here. So so virtue ethics for anybody who's not like super familiar with this tradition is uh, you know something that goes back to like a lot of ancient Greek writers were virtue ethicists. You know Aristotle was famously, and it's revived by people like Philip of Foot um, in uh, in the 20th century in a big way. Uh, Rosalind Hurst House uh, is is this view about ethics where instead of saying uh, instead of being a deontologist where you think, well, there's certain moral rules and like what makes an action morally good is that it conforms to a moral rule or, or being uh, a consequentialist and say, well, the morality of an action comes downstream to the action itself and the consequences it leads to. Uh, and it's like good to the extent it has good consequences and bad to the extent that it has bad consequences. Virtue ethics says, well, uh, that it's actually upstream of the action itself. It's about the, the moral character traits that lead you to act that way in the first place. So the sort of first question for the virtue ethicist uh, isn't like, what is the right thing to do? Or even like, what are morally desirable states of affairs? But what's a, what's a good person? Uh, and the version of this that 
you know, goes into the version of care ethics that I'm familiar with, which, you know, is basically Michael Sloat kind of riffing off of Carol Gilligan and, and combining it with, with, uh, you know, with this tradition of virtue ethics is say, well, it's all about what like a kind of, um, properly empathetic person would do. Um, and so like one of those examples, like I, I mentioned from Carol Gilligan that I said, I'm not quite sure it shows what she thinks it shows. It's like this thing where was it? There was like, there were, they asked a bunch of kids or about uh, this, this moral hypothetical about a, uh, uh, a man whose, whose wife is sick and he, uh, he can't afford the medicine. So would it be morally acceptable for him to like break into the pharmacy to, to get the medicine to save his wife. And like the little boy says, uh, yes, because, uh, because life is more important than property rights. And the idea is that he's treated as like a, as like a math problem. There's like a schema that we're applying. And the little girl's like, well, maybe, you know, maybe, you know, he and the pharmacist could work something out or whatever. <laughs> and, yeah. and, um, uh, and so the sort of classic thing would be to say, well, she doesn't quite, Get what she's being asked, but you know, but Gilgood said, no, 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 she's just thinking about ethics in this different way. It's all about personal relationships and, and, you know, relations of, of caring. Um, and, and I think, I guess, I guess my, uh, after all that, I guess, um, uh, yeah, Silver asked in the chat, is rule utilitarian, deontological, consequential, or virtual? <laughs> cool. uh, yeah, uh, rule utilitarianism is a version of consequentialism. It says that uh, you should follow whatever moral rules will have the best consequences if they're generally followed, roughly. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess my sort of bullet take on all this is that I think that um, – I am act, I'm actually very sympathetic to to virtue ethics as a way of thinking about interpersonal morality, um, and and I do, you know, I mean, like this is one of those places where uh, one of the things that um, that I really disagree with GA Cohen about, and I really agree with Rawls about, is that you know I, I think um, you know I'm not with Sloan. I think that like. I think that there is like a sphere of justice where you should think about things that way. Like, you know, like what, what, what is a just institution and like, it's a, and I don't think that sort of ethics of care kinds of stuff. I, I worry that they can only go so far in sort of terms of sort of substantively answering those questions. But, um, but I agree with Rawls and disagree with Cohen in thinking that the sphere of justice is like, how should basic institutions be organized? And right. that's a, that's a very separate question from interpersonal morality. And when it comes to interpersonal morality, I think I might just be something like a, a, a you broke up again. For interpersonal morality is about um, uh, sorry just to make sure can you still hear me right now now we can hear you yeah okay uh, so so I was going to say what we're uh, ultimately maybe most interested in for interpersonal morality is more like what kind of person you are what kind of person you want to be um, 
than um, than something that's like adequately captured by thinking about either rules or consequences. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, certainly when I when I feel moral guilt about something I've done, I never think, oh man, I I just you know I just violated the categorical imperative. Uh, or, you know, I just broke a moral rule or, or even, uh, you know, I just did something that's going to lead ultimately to more bad consequences than good ones. What I think is, man, why did I have to be such a selfish asshole about that? <laughs> uh, and, and so I think that's the kind of thing, uh, virtue ethics, um, captures well now is, is like empathy, uh, interpersonal caring, the only sort of thing that goes into like, the kind of personal virtues we care about that I'm less sure about, but uh, I, I think that probably you want to be more of a pluralist about that and say there are other kinds of relevant values that, that go in here. But um, anyway, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, well, there's a lot there. Um, uh, and and uh, the more I'm thinking about it, I actually kind of came to this subject through reading um, anthropology more than, mm. more than philosophy. Um, but uh, you know, I don't know. It's tricky because there's like, there's, there's, um, care can also have a, um, a non-moral, even like epistemic, uh, quality to it. Like, uh, Heidegger ends being in time talking about caring as being like a kind of, I can't pretend to un- understand Heidegger. So, um, sure. <laughs> but, um, nobody would trust you if you said you did. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, for him, it's, I, I mean, clearly for him, given his later history, it's not very much an, moral notion um has something to do with you know piecing together the world and um um i guess i don't know i think uh and also i mean one way of characterizing maybe the start of the republic is is the question you know uh what is justice but closely related to that in the first chapter is why care about justice you know that's what what thrasymachus is doing um but, you know, he's trying to make the argument that one shouldn't even care about it. So there are even like, like pre-ethical notions of care, um, which, which might be a bit of an equivocation. Could even say that's as you'd be better off saying concerned with or, you know, focused on or something else. But, um, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, it was also funny you mentioned the thing about the Republic because, uh, you know, my friend, uh, Lillian Sicarchia, who's, who's going to be on the main show very soon again, by the way, I just put out an article in Jacobin about how socialists should think about justice. And, um, I saw somebody on Twitter had like quote tweeted Jacobin's, uh, tweeted fan. They were like, Oh, you know, is, is it justice just a, an innately liberal, you know, liberal idea? I was like, man, somebody tell right. that to play. Right? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's like justice is just a bourgeois notion. It's like, damn. All right. Recognizably, uh, uh, even an ancestor of liberalism, but but yeah, I mean, I think that. So, I mean, maybe a way of kind of tying in some of what you're talking about with um, with Heidegger uh, is. You know, like there, there is a sort of line of thought that some people have about ethics that, you know, I think is even one uh, way of reading some things that Kant says, although it's kind of not very Kantian in a way, uh, is, uh, 
is that it's, um, well, I mean, like when, when Kant says that you're being irrational, if. Uh, I think you broke up again. like logically inconsistent in some way. It's like, well, no, but no, it's not. Like, you know, it, uh, it might be, uh, it might sort of mimic, uh, like you can set things up in the way he does. And, you know, and, and if you have a, you know, whatever, a, you know, you, you believe something that can't be universalizable, then given a bunch of other background assumptions, it sort of mimics logical inconsistency, but it's not. Um, so, so what is, what's the sense in which it's, it's irrational. And if, if it is, I mean, you might think sort of not recognizing other people as, uh, as being beings like yourself who are, um, you know, who are autonomous reasoning agents with their own plans and et cetera, et cetera. Right. I mean, that'd be the sort of very Kantian way of doing it. And, um, and so you're treating them in ways that show that you, you don't, you don't recognize this about them, you know, that that's the sort of, irrational part that it's a sort of like epistemic failing ultimately that you're you're like blind to this fact about other people and you know i i could kind of see the uh you know i i could kind of see that like heideggerian sort of care in the sense of like attentiveness to the way that the world is or something like that um as as tied in here i mean the the caring about justice part um seems like a yeah, sort of separate question to me, but sort of not, right? I mean, it's like I was, you know, it's it's funny that, you know, with all the uh, chat GPT stuff that people have been obsessed with for the last, you know, month or so, uh, I keep thinking about, you know, the time, the first time there was like a, a friend of mine who had a phone with Siri on it uh, back in 2011 or whatever. And I remember... Um, passing around the phone and like trying asking Siri different questions to see how she responded. And, uh, and I asked Siri, are there objective moral truths? Uh, and of course she said, I'm sorry, I don't understand. Can you rephrase the question? And I said, well, uh, are there things that are, you know, objectively bad to do, you know, even if you don't want to do them or something like that. She's like, I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. And I went through like three or four rephrases and then finally, I said, Siri, is there a reason I shouldn't kill people? And uh, Siri's response, I swear to God, was the nearest mental health facility. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, like, there does seem to be something that's like, I don't know, man. Like, it seems like there's this weird kind of accidental human insight there that, um, that there's like, okay, um, ultimately, uh, you know, if you're, you know, psychologically constituted in certain ways, you know, you're going to share certain goals and, uh, you know, we can, you know, we can do moral reasoning when we're, uh, you know, like, like, an, like what seems to me to be an honest way of thinking about what's going on when we're doing moral reasoning is like, we're, we're trying to figure out what goals we ultimately care mm-hmm. about. We try to figure out how to kind of fit those goals into an internally consistent picture uh, but, you know, ultimately, if if you just genuinely, I mean, go back to your point about the Republic, I mean, if you just genuinely don't care, uh, I'm not sure how much there is to be, uh, to be said about that. Like, it's like, yeah. yeah.
Yeah, no, that's hard. I mean, one of the reasons I think I've been attracted to it lately um, is because um, ecology has been on my mind a lot, and um, you know, caring. Uh, it's it's not it's not uh, care. It, it isn't like it's not a super thick concept in the way that like courage or justice or other things are. It seems like almost really elemental. And I feel like one way that that's kind of expressed is that it seems to be uh, a quality that other living creatures share in pretty regularly, you know, uh, whether, whether it's for their kin or for other animals or, you know, things of the like. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, you know, your dog cares, uh, you know, like, uh, it does does seem to uh, does seem to care about you, and uh, I mean, there's there's a whole. Well, maybe your dog, but okay, yours doesn't give a shit, and uh, uh, it would just eat you if you died. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sorry, I digress. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean, there is, um, and that's yeah. I mean, like it it does, um, you know, it it like there is a whole fascinating conversation to be had about whether there is some sense in which non-human animals uh, have are capable of moral or proto-moral or whatever, uh, you know, feelings or actions. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure I have a view on that, you know, one way or the other. Yeah. I, mean, I, I certainly, uh, I would well, certainly. Some, some form of ethics seem very culturally specific and uh, humanly created, but, Care seems to me almost an exception to to that in the sense that it's just such a basic like feature of uh at least the kinds of living creatures that we are and a lot of the ones around us you know yeah i mean of course just saying that like we care about each other or you know your dog <laughs> you know, a better dog would care about you or whatever uh, is uh, like that that's not you know that like there's some distance between that and like an actual view about what ethics is or how it's worked. That's sort of um, like right. in some sense stems from that insight, but yeah, a uh, really good call. Would it go on to, uh, uh, would it go on to, uh, to bruh? So uh, what's in your mind, bruh? Hi. Um, can you hear me? All good. I can. Yep. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, so my question uh, was, I'm generally very sympathetic to the sort of arguments you give about transgender issues, like, um, mm-hmm. you know, parents uh, having a sort of social meaning and a biological meaning, and I'm fine <laughs> with that. But um, in accordance with that, then what is the role of gender that you think would be appropriate um, that would be, like, inclusive of trans people in a general sense? Uh, just to be clear, is the... Um, is the question about definitions or is it about sort of like what, like how you act given those definitions or something like that? I I just want to get clear on that. Yeah. So it would be about definitions. And of course, I don't expect you to produce like the exact necessary and sufficient conditions, just like a general sort of sense of how you get there. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, uh, so yeah, going with that analogy that I've always liked from Sophie Grace Chappelle to, to parenthood, that we um, uh, that uh, that we say um, 
you know, that like everybody knows what you mean if you, uh, if you say the test came back and you're not the father, but everybody also knows what you mean when you say my father adopted me when I was three. Uh, so, you know, there, there is some, like, there is some ambiguity to terms like man, woman, and father, uh, or sorry, to terms like mother, parent, mother, mother, father, and parent. And similarly, the thought would be maybe something similar is going on linguistically with, uh, with terms like man, woman, and gender. Um, and so then the question is, okay, well, what would, uh, what's, uh, you know, we, like, we kind of feel like we know what the two, um, like what two language games were played when we, when we use the, when we say the test came back, you're not the father and, and my father adopted me when I was three. So what's the equivalent for, um, you know, uh, for, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the test came back and your, your baby is going to be a girl versus, you know, Natalie Wynn is a girl or whatever. Um, I, I think, uh, the, you know, so I hope this part doesn't sound like a cop out. I really am going to say things that are more informative than this. I hope as we go on, but, uh, but I think one quick thing to note would be that, um, I think that coming up with like super precise definitions for, uh, the social sense of parenthood is also a little is also like a little bit harder than it looks. Kind of the closer you look at it, uh, that the uh, that like we all have an intuitive sense that we know what the uh, you know we know about what the social definition is. But I think if you try to spell it out a little bit, it gets it gets harder than you think really fast. Um, and you know, in general, um, it's you know, in general. And I know you, you said you're not asking for precise, necessary, and sufficient conditions, but I mean, coming up with precise, necessary, and sufficient conditions for like most things is incredibly difficult. Uh, you know, like the classic examples, Wittgenstein trying to figure out uh, necessary and sufficient conditions for, for game. Um, you know, what counts as a game or like people will say like, okay, well, what counts as a chair exactly? Even that's like way harder than you think it will be when you, when you start, uh, when you, when you like really start and you really start thinking about counterexamples to all the definitions. But, uh, but yeah, I think that, uh, I think that there's, you know, things get like, um, I guess I would say that there is a sense that most people have, like, I'm very skeptical when people say that they don't have any sort of, uh, gender identity that like, you know, thinking of themselves as a man or a woman isn't, um, you know, is like not a psychologically important uh, thing to them. And that does seem to be associated with all of these, uh, all these social roles sorts of things that the, uh, that in other words, like uh, that, you know, that there are, you know, there, there, there are some people that we, uh, you know, that we think of as, as, as men. There are some things that we, some people we think of as women. We have men's and women's, uh, you know, bathrooms. We have men's and women's clothing, you know, uh, we have, um, you know, we have, uh, uh, like in all sorts of, uh, I mean, you get, in fact, a lot of the context that inspire the sort of thorniest kind of, um, uh, the thorniest edge cases about, you know, about, uh, equal equal rights, you know, about about uh, you know sports and prisons and all that stuff. Uh, so 
yeah, it, it does seem like we can kind of say, well, there is this social role. Uh, and I'm not even, you know, I, I think to go with the Sophie Grace Chappelle analogy, you don't even necessarily have to think that the gender in the non-biological sense is a social role exactly. Uh, you just have to think that there is some non-biological sense or another, but I'm perfectly happy to go with the social role one. You can say like, look, there is, there is this kind of social role that like pretty much every society has created around biological sex. Um, it's obviously ultimately based in biological sex, but you know, we, we do, you know, have, you know, men's and women's section of the, of the, uh, of, um, of, you know, JC Petty. We, you know, we, we do have, uh, you know, men's and women's bathrooms. We do have, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, it, it seems like if nothing else, you know, we could say like, look, here's, you know, that one way of using terms like, you know, man and woman is, um, you know, the, you know, the social role typically associated with the, you know, male biological sex or, you know, the social role typically associated with the, the female biological sex where all we really mean by social role is stuff, uh, is stuff like, uh, you know, the, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, being referred to as ma'am instead of sir, and, you know, and, and, and going to, you know, going to get clothes at this section of the store instead of that section of the store, et cetera. And obviously, you know, in the ordinary way that we'd use these all terms, like you could obviously be a man or a woman and not check all of these boxes, of course, right? It's not like if you, you know, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's not like we would say a woman who, you know, uh, always buys her clothes at the uh, male section of JCPenney is no longer a woman. Um, but, you know, it might be something like a cluster concept, right? That you like, like John Searle uh, talks about these that like, that there's, you know, that there's like, we sort of use certain terms to denote checking enough boxes out of some list of boxes where like, you know, not everybody who's going to be in the category is going to check anything like every box, but like you check enough boxes, you know, we, that's like, that's kind of what defines, what defines the, um, uh, you know, what defines the category. And, and I guess I, I know all of this has been a little bit vague. I mean, I'm still thinking about it, but I, and I'd be interested in hearing what you think, but I just want to say before I throw back to you that I think that the, um, that part of what I like about the Sophie Grace Chappelle analogy about parenthood is precisely that we could be pluralists about it. In other words, that we don't have to insist that the only legitimate way of using terms like boy, girl, man, woman, gender, etc., is to refer to, um, uh, you know, gender in the social sense. We could say, sure, there are some contexts where it makes more sense to use those terms to refer to gender in the biological sense. That's fine. The same way that with, with terms like mother, father, and parent, you know, look, there are some contexts in which we, um, we use those terms to refer to the biological relationship. There are some contexts in which we will use those terms to refer to the social relationship. In, you know, the majority of times, people who are, people who are parents in one sense were also parents in the other sense. So we don't really need to decide which one we mean because they overlap. But when they don't overlap, we have to decide which one we mean in any context. And, you know, and there are various contexts like, uh, you know, when you say, you know, that they have, uh, you know, when you say I've never met your mother, when like we, we all know that what you mean is the biological sense of motherhood. 
and there's some context like you know like like when you you say you know um you know my uh you know yeah whatever this is uh you know uh this is my mother uh you know she you know she she married my dad when i was three that uh that we understand that you're using it in the other sense and, and like that's part of that's a pragmatic decision it's just like what makes the most you know what's the sort of most efficient way to communicate information in that context um and then part of it could also be a moral or political decision that like if we lived in some sort of hell world where um where there were people who were like militantly opposed to adoption and step parenting and um and there were like you know moms for liberty was uh, was petitioning to uh to to make schools you know not allow uh step parents into parent teacher conferences um and this was a big hot button cultural war issue then in that world i would say that like one of the big considerations that should guide which one of these terms we you know whether we use terms like parent mother father and parent in a biological way or a social way in various contexts one of the big considerations that should guide us in that world would be don't be an asshole and uh and i think that um you know that would probably guide us in a lot of context towards using it in a social way but look there are also contexts in which it's useful to keep around the biological uh, you know the biological definition and sort of use it when that makes sense and i think something similar is probably true in the sex and gender case that um that you know it, it's fine uh and by the way, I should say there are people uh, who insist that there's no such thing as biological sex. I don't really, uh, I don't really buy that argument. I, I, I think it's like way too useful content, concept to get rid of. Uh, but uh, but there are um, there are cases in which it makes sense to use those terms in that way. Like if you talk about like you know men's health, um, you know men should get such and such exam on a regular basis or whatever. Not necessarily always. Sometimes those things might be things that make sense if you've been taking testosterone treatments for the last 10 years or whatever. But in many such cases, um, we obviously know what we mean by man in that context is adult human male. But uh, there are other, you know, there are other contexts, many other contexts in which I think it, it makes sense to, to sort of use the term in a more inclusive way. And, you know, I have no problem with, you know, I, I think it's silly I think it's both politically counterproductive and a little silly to uh, to like avoid, you know, to like say like pregnant people instead of women when you're talking about abortion, all that stuff. I think we can. I think one of the things I like about this view is that we can we can sort of take a pass on some of the linguistic absurdities that you get from being a social modist about this, and at the same time, um, and at the same time, avoid you know being exclusionary or obnoxious uh, to trans people in you know most other contexts so anyway that those are i know that's all a little bit scattered but that's what i got what do you think yeah so um i mean i, I agree with basically everything you said the um maybe the heart of the question is i think in sort of um philosophically literate leftist communities there's a sort of discussion of what types of traits we should let into the um the sort of constellation of traits that you would consider make somebody socially speaking, a woman or a man. Yep. Um, and so there's, so for example, I think that, you know, some people have this view that just identifying makes you a woman. I think that's like, you know, an incoherent and terrible view just because 
it doesn't actually elucidate what a woman is at all, right? Uh, but um, I think other more coherent views will have things like enacting certain social roles makes you a woman or just having certain dispositions makes you a woman. And um, in my view, I think the dispositional view is the best one because if we imagined like um, a woman who just, you know, for some reason was prevented physically from doing all of the social roles that would make her a woman, uh, we would still want to say that she's a woman. But I'm wondering if you have a view as to what types of traits we should count towards being a woman. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, I also find it, just as a, just as a footnote, uh, I also find it really interesting that this discussion is almost always couched in terms of being a woman, not being a man. Uh, but uh, but yeah, um, I think you know, which is anyway, sort of interested in itself. But I'm not sure I have that much to say about that. But yeah. Um, I think that you probably have much more fine-grained views on this uh, than than I do. I mean, I think that sort of like making the kind of first couple moves that, that I was making earlier is kind of enough to kind of put my mind at ease that there's nothing incoherent about uh, about talking this way, which is like most of what I'm interested in. But um, yeah, I think something uh, – I mean, I see your point about the dispositional view um, – like that, you know, we would say that, you know, being a woman in the social sense that like it's maybe, um, or you're going to be a man in the social sense uh, means that you, uh, you know, you are inclined to, or, you know, you're in some sort of right relationship with uh, the, um, you know, doing all these things, not that you're actually, you know, not that you're actually doing them, right? I mean, if, I, I guess if we if we imagine some sort of, um, uh, you know, that the um, some kind of extremely socially conservative big brother that was tracking people all the time and making sure that nobody who wasn't uh, biologically male was, you know, shopping in the men's section at JCPenney or, you know, using the men's bathroom and, you know, vice versa for, you know, people who were biologically female, um, then we would, you know, we, we would still want to say when we're thinking about that world that uh, that people who for whom this was a hardship that they weren't allowed to do these things uh, that they uh, that they that like they really wanted to and it really interfered with their sense of themselves and etc that that would like that's like roughly the target group of people that we're talking about when we think about people who are men or women in the social sense but not in the biological sense so um, so yeah I'm, I'm uh, I'm sympathetic to that, but also I, sh I should say that I'm also 100% sure that you've probably you know thought about this in a much more fine-grained way than I have. Yeah, maybe just um, well, one last sort of sure. uh, thing to think about before I leave is I think even under the dispositional view, there's sort of a disagreement between those who think that the dispositions are like dispositions to do some things, right? Mm -hmm. Like So disposition to buy clothes that would be generally associated uh, with like a man, right? versus those who have sort of preference-like dispositions uh, with how to be treated. So like some people's view is that to be a man is to have a disposition that you prefer to be treated in the way that like males are in society, right? And the sex-based definition, um, uh -huh. those types of things. So I think that uh, obviously there's, there's a whole buffet of possible options here. And uh, of course, you know, it's a very thorny issue. So I understand not having a very developed view, I, not that I have one either. Um, yeah, I, I mean, like first 
like first reaction, like first impulse would be to say that uh, it seems plausible to me that uh, that that both uh, that both like preferences about treatment and, and dispositions to act in certain ways that like maybe both of those could could go into the checklist. Uh, I don't know if that's a cop out, but I mean that that seems like maybe probably right to me. Uh, that like both of those kind of go into our rough intuitive sense of what we're talking about uh, when we you know we think about this. But again, this is also um, you know a lot of the a lot of the finer distinctions here. I'm not super familiar with, but like also I should say maybe kind of last thought for the call, which was a really good call. Thank you. Um, just kind of stepping back a little bit from from all of this. That one thing I'd really want to emphasize to anybody who's listening is maybe not sure you know, what they think about some of this stuff is that um, the way in which, okay, there's this buffet of options. There's like maybe something you could say intuitively for like lots of different, you know, um, items in the buffet. Uh, and, you know, I don't know, maybe there's ways to combine them, etc. This isn't like a unique situation for gender. This is the kind of thing you run into when you like try really hard to analyze most concepts that we that we sort of feel like we have a a regular you know intuitive grasp on right I mean like 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 it's it's much less interested and, and morally and politically important than the gender case but like again if you really start to dig into like what you mean by chair and like what's the definition that's going to include beanbag chairs and are you going to be excluded you know excluding love seats and all that stuff uh which you know might be silly because it doesn't matter very much but i mean it's like um you're going to run into the same kind of things right so it's like if this is why i was kind of saying earlier that if i can kind of satisfy myself that i'm at least no more confused about how this concept works than i am about how you know chair works as a concept or game or whatever um that I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, last recommendation is, uh, I know you have Ethan on your program once in a while who goes yep. under confronting capital. Um, I think he has a very good video called what is a woman that should still be on his channel. So, um, uh, nice. if anybody yep. in the audience is curious about sort of a rigorous, um, definition that he uses, that'd be a great place, but thanks again for your time. And it was a uh, good talking with you. All right. Thanks, bro. And thank you for the recommendation. Let's try one more time. Jonathan? Hey, can you hear me now? Uh, you're a little soft, but I can't hear you. Okay. I can talk louder. <laughs> okay. Cool. What's under my... It was a very philosophical episode. And I, well, yeah, I like that. that's true. But uh, I remind you of... Um, yeah. What you just said about slave morality and is about how it's like um, you define yourselves by what you don't do. Mm-hmm. And he contrasts that with the virtue ethics. And when you were talking about virtue ethics, it's sort of, I think of myself as the virtue ethicist, I guess. Because when you're like a slave in Egypt, right? What do the commandments all come out as? Thou shalt not don't do blame. this, don't do that. Don't do this, don't do that. Why? Because you can't do anything, so you have to find virtue in what you don't do. It's like that's uh-huh. what you abstain, and all of a sudden, doing nothing is a virtue because you didn't do anything wrong. And I guess you didn't do anything wrong. But in the Greek, all that, all that, the Hebrew morality can be summed up in just one of their virtues, which is moderation or temperance, right? 
It's just like, can mm-hmm. you, and there's something to that. It's like, can you not, like some people might say, I would say that's what maturity is, is the answer to that question. Can you, can you not blank? Because if you can't <laughs> not blank, then you're going to gamble and smoke and just your impulse control is nowhere and you're, you're going to be a, a slave to the id. But you have to do, they, they have a concept of sin in the Greek, but uh-huh. they're not obsessed with it. Like it's, the morality bottoms out at zero. It doesn't go negative like the Christian morality where you're trying to get up to zero from from a born negative, original sin, right? Right. Whereas in the Greek, you start at zero and you can have no virtue, some virtue or a lot of virtue. But in order to have virtue, you have to do, you have to exhibit virtue. You have to be virtuous. You have to do mm-hmm. something. And even evil people can be great in a way. And uh, right. which is why I, I like that a lot. I like that you have to do something. You have to you have to build something. You have to have, have talent, be judicious, something that's not just nothing. And although, you know, utilitarianism has its uses, there are certain questions where you you, you, redu- you do reduce it to math when it's super obvious. But when it's not yeah. obvious, you got to let go of that sort of way of thinking. And the entirety of deontology can be reduced to basically one Greek virtue, too. You know, you could call it a couple of different things, I guess, but it's duty, maybe. Yeah. Or, you know, it's kind of loyalty, but you can be loyal to, to bad things, too. So it's like a combination of loyalty and judicious and prudence. Yeah. Although there and is this sort of way that we intuitively think that it's... Uh there's something admirable about being loyal even to bad things. I mean, if you, uh, right, right. But they, the Greek would agree with that too. It's like, you still have a, like a dog can be loyal to its owner and its owner can be evil, but you still sort of admire the loyalty of the dog mm-hmm. in a way. And the other thing about Wittgenstein was really interesting because I mean, he gives even a longer treatment to the word reading than he does to the word game. Uh-huh. Like, you know, you have somebody reading a script they don't understand, somebody reading to somebody else. If I listen to an audiobook, have I read it? You know, it's like, it's all these weird little questions. But that's, the, that whole discussion you just had could be a chapter in Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations. It's like, <laughs> the whole thing about women right now, it could mm-hmm. just be just another chapter in that book. But just how they say from early Wittgenstein goes to from saying, trying to say how things are, even though he, what he's trying to say is you can't do that. He's like, yeah, but you fell into a trap. You see, you can't say that you can't say things because you just said it. Yeah. So in the little, in the late Wittgenstein, he tries to show, he tries to show how demonstrate this failing over and over again. If your question takes the form, what is X? What is a woman? What is knowledge? What is justice? What is the good? You're falling into a trap. Like a, it's a, grammatical trap not the grammar of english or german but the grammar of logic is being offended when you phrase your question what is x mm-hmm. which is why he didn't like academic philosophy because what is epistemology what is knowledge people arguing over that what is ethics people arguing over what is evil what is metaphysics people arguing over what is is being you know he's like this is you're, you're fucking up when you ask a question that way and you try to answer it in a vacuum and answer trying to ask what is a woman in a vacuum is also stupid for the same <laughs> reason it's it's the same like Wittgenstein would be pulling his eyes out having to listen to this it's like you yeah, know yeah. what you know what a spade is you don't you already know so don't sit around pretending like you don't know you do know 
yeah, you could say it's arbitrary. Be like Native Americans had long hair. It wasn't feminine per se to have long hair. There's normal uh, elements, the gender. Everyone like that's not that complicated of a concept, but we tend to make it way more complicated than it really has to be. Yeah, yeah I mean, Go ahead. there's this. Uh, uh, so yeah, I mean, Wittgenstein, uh, at least at one point, you know, his. Um, uh, you know, has this, um, uh, has, you know, like says, well, you know, you should just think of these as family resemblance relationships that the, uh, that, um, you know, you like when you're saying that, you know, people look like they're in a certain family, then, you know, it's like, okay, well, you know, there are various things that various members of the family, look like in common but uh but there's this there's no one way that they all look that defines the uh the family what you mean by justice is related to what i mean by justice but never the twain shall totally meet and we'll just yeah. past each other forever if we try to argue over the definition yeah Out, right outside of the context of a specific and if you are arguing over the definition the best thing to do is to remove the word from the conversation. I told my pastor friend, I was like, if you can't give a sermon about faith without actually using the word faith, you do not know what you're talking about. And if you're arguing over inflation or something, yeah. try to have the argument without using the word inflation, because then you have to be specific every single time. And if you're equivocating, you'll, you'll, you'll have to stop equivocating because some people mean how the dollar trades with the bond. Other people mean Forex. Other people mean the base cost of living. Other people mean core CPI, which is, you know, a bunch of bullshit anyway, and then, which doesn't relate to real life. And then that people will talk past each other then too. Yeah, but you see what I mean though? It's a, it's a highly equivocated upon word. So you could say uh -huh. Wittgenstein's whole point is basically just a thousand descriptions and examples of the equivocation fallacy, which is like the sky is blue, things that are blue are sad, therefore the sky is sad. I made the same face noise, blue, but I'm referring to radically different concept when I do that. Of course, the problematic instances of that fallacy are a lot more subtle than that, but that's basically yeah. what's going on. You, the, the list of uses you've ever heard a word used in your head is not the same as my list of times I've ever heard that word. And it's platonic to be like the list points to the definition. But no, Wittgenstein's no, the list is the definition. There's no outside real thing. Everything's made up. Language is made up. Money's made up. Like it's, it's, we're all stuck in Platonism when we deify the word itself and ideas themselves. Like, you know, it's kind of like a chasing of God. Yeah, I should, I should say there's a, uh, on the game example, because I brought it up, there's this book by Bernard Suits uh, from the 80s called uh, The Grasshopper Games, Life and Utopia, where uh, a big section of it is, is uh, Suits saying, oh, no, no, we actually can give uh, necessary and sufficient conditions for game. And he, he offers some, of course, uh, opinions will differ about whether he's successful in that. I don't know if anybody's ever tried it for, uh, for reading. Yeah, uh, oh, they're for fun, but what about war games? They're not for fun. Well, you do it with your friends. Well, what about solitaire? You don't do that with your friends. Like, oh, you try to get better at it. Well, what about drinking games? You don't try to get better at those. Like, there's always a counterexample. I'll speak for yourself there, but yeah. Uh, I, I, I gotcha, yeah. I, I think, uh, so yeah, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think Suits probably gives the best attempt. Whether it actually uh, whether it's actually successful, maybe maybe not. I actually saw, I haven't yeah. listened to it, but there's a recent episode of uh, of Very Bad Wizards uh, where they're talking about a um, they're talking about an argument that chess actually doesn't meet uh, Suits' definition. Which, if so, uh, maybe back to the drawing board on that. But uh, but yeah, really yeah, interesting. Start call. defining things. Yeah. We start defining things like broadly enough that you're never wrong. It loses all use. It uses it loses meaning because Wittgenstein says something about a pristine glacier that you've made, but there's no traction on it. You can't do anything with it. You can't move anywhere. You, you you've got you got too good. Language is messy because it deals with the real world. Yeah. Um, yeah. So see, we've, I mean, we've sparked all the interest of all these people queuing up. <laughs> which is a big substantive question is, okay, is it really true always um, that the, uh, that the list is all you can say? I mean, are there like, a, this is, this is just like a real metaphysical question. Like, are there, um, you know, are there actual, um, you know, concepts? With a uh, you know, world. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think it necessarily has to be abstract forms, but I think, you know, you, you can say, like, you know, is is reality actually constituted such that there are particular things that you're pointing to? And, of course, you can equivocate, you know, it's not always going to be, um, you know, it's, it's not that the same word, you know, always uh, always points to the same one of these things. And, you know, there could be, could even be very subtle cases in which it seems like it does, but then we sort of do disambiguation. It turns out they, they don't. That's that's yeah, but does it exist? Is the question you're asking whether we can get no, no, it but, or not? Yeah, it does does it exist? And that's like a that's like a real you know real uh, real substantive question um, that you know that that I don't I don't have a you know knocked out argument about you know uh, <laughs> you know right Plano now. says yes. Yeah, Plato says yes, but I, I would also just just push back a little bit against thinking you have to go all the way to uh, what Plato means in order to make sense of any kind of yes, right? In other well, words, if, like for you, know, do, do you have to have there. you have to have like abstract, you know, abstract forms that exist out of, outside of time and space, etc., for it to be the case that there are, you know, that like as a semantic issue that like. Sometimes right. we mean something, sometimes we mean the other, but like, you know, but like we do often mean the same thing, that there's like a way of making sense of what it is that we mean with, that's not just sort of generating the list, that there, are, that there, are, there are there are things in the world, you know, so to move from the semantic to the metaphysical, that there are, there are things that really exist in reality that like, you know, that, that can correspond to these concepts, et cetera. I mean, you know, there are. You know, I don't want to give. Uh, they you may know, exist, but that's of... not the world you live in, and that's not the world I live in. So m maybe yeah. they do exist, but you and I don't have access to it. Our world maybe. is the creation of our own mind. That's what I believe, by personally. Okay. Like, yeah. You draw yeah. the world with your mind. It may or may not be real, but you'd never know. You're just an ape with language. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, you are certainly just an ape with language, but then the, the question is, um, you know, do. Um, you know, do apes with language have uh, have have zero have have, have have zero epistemic access to uh, the uh, to uh, to the way that things really are? Uh, oh, not much or... more than a pigeon, I think. Okay, well, you know, you could think that even pigeons have uh, have have non zero amounts of epistemic access to the way the world right, is. Right, but, but then that we're more big, like pigeons big, big than gods. Okay, that's fine, but you could be more like a pigeon than a god. And still have a fair amount of access to how the world is, but um, sure, 
sure. but obviously, uh, obviously, very big question. Uh, what do uh, what do what to try to start taking a couple more of these calls? But thank you so much. I John, love these little philosophical digressions. Uh, thanks, Ben. Have a good one. All right, this was fun. Thanks. All right, John number two, John Ross. What's up, everybody? Well, hey, Ben. Uh, first of all, happy New Year. Happy New Year's Eve, I should say to you. Uh, yeah. yeah, happy New Year to you. What's let's, up? Well, the thing of this is we're chatting about what's on everyone's mind, kind of looking at the, the year, so to speak, of what's been going on as far as left media, because that's like a big topic of mine. I hope I could phrase this uh, to where you can understand it. Um, like, where, where do you see left media going in 2023? Okay. Uh, good question. I think that, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if this is totally where you're going, but I think that there is a sense in which, um, like things are a little bit unmoored right now that, you know, roughly from 2015 to 2020, um, when in other words, the period in which, um, of Bernie Sanders two runs for president and the few years in between when, you know, it was, um, you know, when, when everybody kind of knew there was a very good chance that there was going to be a second one and, you know, that it was possible to feel pretty hopeful about that. Uh, that really helped a lot. I mean, this is going to be a very America specific answer, but uh, that really helped a lot in terms of feeling like you're contributing to a sort of live project um, when you're doing, left media. Now, I mean, I, I do think that it's really important to make careful distinctions between political involvement and political commentary uh, that, you know, what you're doing when you do political commentary, when you do media is, you know, it can have a sort of useful auxiliary function with political education, political inspiration, political clarification, but, you know, ultimately to actually do politics, you need to log off and, you know, knock on doors and stuff. But um, But still, even if it's in this auxiliary capacity. I mean, it's, it's still felt like it's attached to this very concrete, very easy to identify thing in the world that, you know, that was like really advanced in left politics. And with, um, you know, the second Bernie campaign um, crashing and burning uh, at the, you know, at the same time as, uh, as COVID, which really made things feel, you know, a bit more apocalyptic, then you know, that's really been been lost. And of course, that doesn't mean that things aren't going on or important things aren't going on or, you know, there aren't things going on that do advance left politics. Of course there are. I mean, you know, shit doesn't just stop. But mm-hmm. um, but it's all a little bit more diffuse. Right? And, and there's like, I think it's a lot less clear to a lot of people. You know, I think the Bernie campaigns like exercised a kind of gravitational pull on any kind of leftist who wasn't, uh, a completely marginal sectarian who had some instinct for involvement in real world politics. And, and I think that uh, right now there's not much that can exert that same kind of gravitational pull. And there's a kind of question about, okay, where do you, um, how do you rebuild that in the absence right. of something that's like as attention grabbing as a presidential campaign. And, uh, and that's tricky. I mean, I, ideally what I'd like to fill that role is labor organizing. You know, because it's the it's the thing that I think is ultimately most important in terms of building up a grassroots power base that could, you know, upstream of successful political efforts. Uh, but uh, how to do that is really hard. I mean, I've thought for a while now, I was, you know, that kind of inspired by some conversations with Jim Bajalad that um, 
a lot of what I think of myself as doing certainly in terms of media is just kind of in terms of like, okay, how can you make a left intervention that is relevant in some way to real politics as they exist in America in 2022 or, you know, in not very many hours, 2023, um, you know, without like kind of pretending that things are in a place where they're not. And I think a lot of that is this kind of two front war where you're like pushing back against the sort of absurd populist pretensions of the right and also pushing back against um, the way that um, so much kind of neoliberal progressive politics is has you know redefined justice as the quest for a more demographically representative ruling class and um, you know and I, and I think that like a lot of like what I do for example the Daily Beast I think I was is kind of trying to just sort of hit both of those notes whatever you know whatever possible um but yeah i mean it's uh i i know that was a little bit diffuse but i mean did, did that kind of get at what you were asking about no not at all that that was actually makes sense um well also like what you do for jacobin and what you said for daily beast but also the stuff that you've been writing for jacobin kind of ties in that ties into that as well uh with like this stuff with as far as like the label labor organizing I think a lot of what left media needs to do is go down that down that route, so to speak, and having um, having more labor labor organized uh, newsrooms. Uh, also, probably worker owned newsrooms would probably probably uh, very much so be a, an option as well. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I think that you know, I think that finding more ways to to integrate you know, left media with some of those efforts is, is definitely a good thing. Uh, thank you so much for the call, uh, John. No problem. No problem. Thank you. going to go slightly out of order because I have two calls left. Uh, and I'm going to take uh, Bosco before I take Mark. Bosco, what's on your mind? Sorry, can you hear me? Uh, I can. You're speaking a little softly, but I can hear you. Oh, okay. Um, my mic's kind of messed up. I should have thought this through. Uh, well, I've I've been an avid reader of yours, um, and uh, I've met you in East Lansing. Um, oh, at the uh, at uh, Meyer. No, actually, I lived in Michigan for a long time. So, like. <laughs> no, no, no. And, no. I, was, I was I was trying to think of this specific context, but yeah, go on. Right. Um, I've been following you for a while now, and I just saw, saw something pop up on my feed, and I actually um, uh, 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 just read your book recently, which was about uh, Christopher Hitchens. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, my uh, introduction to Christopher Hitchens, as I think somebody growing up in, like, the early 2000s, was basically through one of those uh, rabbit holes of, uh, of, of what was the new atheism movement mm-hmm. this yep. sort of that you know kind of transferred into this uh, right wing shift towards almost a, a crypto fascist kind of um, uh, movement Ooh. later on. I mean, it actually grew up within the Gamergate era when these YouTube skeptics were becoming more more in line with 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 the with the movement that was coming through and, and, and the sort 
and I know during that time, like uh, Christopher Hitchens kind of like moved away from the public eye. I mean, he had cancer and all that. And uh, uh, what would you think, like, in, like, uh, like he would looking back as a Trotskyite in his early works? Um, uh, how would you think he would have responded to the whole MAGA and the right word uh, shift that is happening right now? Um, I guess this is my first question. Okay, yeah. Uh, so, so I guess I would just really quickly say, push back a little bit on the premise about new atheism, that um, I would say what really happened with new atheism is that when the cultural moment passed, um, it kind of it dispersed in a lot of different directions. And I think sometimes on the left, we have this idea that sort of like, the whole thing kind of moved as a block to the right. And, and I, I don't know, I'm a little skeptical about that. I think that, um, you know, if you kind of think about it, like, in, in some cases, sure, I mean, Sam Harris uh, went from being a charter new atheist to a charter member of the intellectual dark web, although he's also kind of um, right. fallen out with those guys over vaccines and, and, uh, and Donald Trump. Um, and so, you know, I mean, he had, you know, I, I, I strongly dislike, uh, I strongly dislike Sam Harris in, uh, in many, many ways, but I guess give him credit for that. And, um, and then you have, um, you know, like even within the sort of, the sort of four horsemen, you know, you've got, you know, Daniel Dennett, who just kind of went back to talk about philosophy uh, and uh, didn't really have further political involvement. And, you know, Richard Dawkins, right. who, uh, uh, who, who just kind of, you know, I mean, he says embarrassing things on Twitter, but he's... That dude was an out-and-out, out-and-out uh, um, eugenicist uh, from, from what I can look back down reading those things that I didn't understand at that time as a, as a kid. Uh, I mean, not 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 in his uh, bibliography, but uh, I, I think it was uh, some kind of excerpt that I saw where uh, he called eugenics uh, some, some kind of, yeah... But there, okay, there well, wasn't... Well, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with that. I was going to say, as far as I can tell, though, um, you know, he's, um, you know, I mean, he's, he's got the same politics that, that, you know, that he ever did, which is to say, like, you know, he's, he's kind of a mediocre liberal, uh, you know, as far as, I can, as far as I can tell. I mean, like, you know, he was, um, and, you know, I also think the sort of extent... Oh, here the, it is. I, I literally have this tweet from you. Yep, for you. let's do it. Um, February 16, 2020, and Richard Dawkins is still up for some reason. It says, uh, it's one thing to deploy eugenics on an ideological, political, moral grounds. It's quite another to conclude that it wouldn't work in practice. Of course it would. It works for cows, horses, pigs, dogs, and roses. Why on earth wouldn't it work for humans? Facts ignore ideology. That's still up. Yeah. I, I mean, I think he's, you know, I mean, it certainly sounds like he's phrasing that to try to be provocative. Does that make him a eugenicist in the sense of somebody who advocates eugenics? I'm not sure. I'd also, if I were talking to him, I would, I would, I would want to know, like, ask a lot of follow up questions about exactly what works uh, means to him there. But yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, Dawkins, uh, Oh, right. No, he did follow it up with. Yeah, but I remember he used to be such a uproar back in the day. Uh, 
yeah. You know, but I mean, like Dawkins was, you know, Dawkins was opposed to the war in Iraq. You know, I mean, he was, he was, he was very down on, on Bush. Like I said, I don't think I ever had particularly good politics. There's a definitely some Islamophobia in there, and whatnot. But I think he, um, you know, but I, I don't see that as having changed much. And on a grassroots level. I think like different sort of groups of people who had been new atheists went in a lot of different directions. Um, and, you know, and, and honestly, I think that there's more, um, it's kind of weird to me that like so much of the left perception of this is that it's like, Oh, you know, everybody who was into new atheism just sort of moved as a mass through, you know, Gamergate into, you know, Jerome Peterson or whatever, when, when so many leftists, at least anecdotally, seem to have uh, themselves been people who are really into new atheism way back when. Um, you know, I, again, I think it just kind of scattered in a lot of different directions would be my, uh, my hot take on that. But as far as your question about Hitchens specifically, um, I think that I think there's like a range of things you could imagine Christopher Hitchens doing if he'd, he'd live for, you know, another 10 years or another 12 years. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously on the really good end of that range, I would like to believe that, uh, that there's a scenario where his, um, uh, you know, there's a scenario where the, uh, I was just going to say where like his attachment to, uh, you know, where like, you know, the sort of, you know, the, well, the stuff I start the book by talking about, where yeah, like Bernie Hillary campaign sort of revives some of his some of his late socialism. But I was just going to say, the worst end of that spectrum is like uh, that he would be the worst thing that I could imagine him being politically is like um, is like a uh, a sort of like really annoying resistance liberal or maybe even a kind of Lincoln Project sort of uh, no. neocon never Trump. I, I really think that the, and, the, and, and the, as, I was just going to say though, as as bad as that would be, right, yeah. and as sad as that would be, right, to yeah. uh, to, to to see that engines. Oh, um, my heart, man! It would have broke my heart. <laughs> you know, I I just can't. I I think there's zero chance that he would have ended up being mega. I think that on too many levels. I think I think he would have, you know. I, I think there are better and worse ways that he could have rejected it, but I, I I think that the I think that the spectrum of possible options bottoms out at something that's not quite as bad as that, even though it's pretty bad in its own way. I think I think he would have come to uh, regret like his neocon positions at least, or, or back down with like the invasions of Iraq, because his whole um, matter on the uh, uh, the one thing that pretty much changed his opposition to the war, I, I think. But well, one of the things was, uh, was, the, was uh, the Kurdish uh, independence movement. Yep. And, and I think right with uh, where we stand today on Syria and like with Kurdistan like, uh, and how like, you know, the, uh, the, the withdrawal of the American forces from that region kind of left, uh, kind of left uh, Kurdish um, militias with their own splinter groups kind of to fend for themselves, I think he would have um, seen, um, like, that's the blowback as somebody who comes from that kind of sort of like a third world quagmire. Like, yeah. I'm from Nepal. I grew up in the 90s during the Maoist conflict there. Like, and like, as you know, like, third world leftists were famous for splintering off into groups and cannibalizing each other instead yeah. of... Uh, I think that 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 pretty much would have brought him back to his like roots, 
is if you have lived long enough to the way it did uh, you know for for like a lot of leftists in the third world um, anyway I had this thing um, that I was reading and I I, I, um, uh, I heard you uh, kind of discuss it uh, uh, in a in a podcast um, yeah it was uh, the 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 conscien like uh, thing about like the the, the polite uh, murderer or what was it? Right? The murder at the door. Uh, it was about the the uh, the murderer that uh, at the door. The conscien question of like you know, and uh, I, I mean there was this other book that I was reading, and it was about the. It was about Immanuel Kant's like uh, third critique, uh -huh. and how how he would actually um, uh, yeah, the the Kantian Marxian uh, Marxian uh, thing that goes beyond aesthetics, um, and uh, I I feel like that as as today in uh, during like New Year's Eve, I think that that comes to play a lot more. Because I feel like the the, the, the commodities that we, we that we had produced around this around around this area, like around this time of the year, globally speaking, uh, everything from last year I remember used to be like around this month used to be geared towards um, the New Year holiday. It was a big uh -huh. part, big part of like global production throughout uh, the the you know throughout earth basically even as somebody from the third world i remember like all uh all our production all our work used to be uh centered around this one holiday even as uh, even coming to america as an immigrant i remember working for like uh, we used to call like holiday season hell week right sure and uh um, if you're working the holidays obviously and as a working class person, like in the few years since after like the supply chain bottleneck and mm -hmm. uh, basically all the inflation and everything, I've actually seen people spend less, right? And then, like there's work hours that are being cut during the holiday that 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 didn't used to be a thing because holidays was when we immigrants that weren't you know Christian or didn't you know vibe with the traditional Christmas that much that was our time to earn like overtime pay but that didn't happen this year that didn't happen last year because the hours were getting cut things are getting more expensive um, and that's you know usually what they use to cut labor costs down um, like is is the commodity fetishism that that, that, that uh, existed before in like the sense that that was in that book about uh, the third critique where he like you know talks about Adorno and all these people. Like, is it dying? Like in the sense that it's like this pandemic, uh, uh, post-pandemic economy, and like uh, you know, um, like is like New Year's and Christmas. Or have you won the war on Christmas? Have you like you know like is commodity <laughs> fetishism around holidays actually dying? as a thing and uh, I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, okay. Uh, I seriously doubt it. So I think that, um, you know, yeah, I'd, I'd be, I mean, obviously, you know, somebody could show me some stats uh, for the last couple of years that about um, about actual significant uh, changes in this that I'll, you know, I will, uh, I will reconsider. But I would be, uh, I have to say, I'd be pretty shocked if people's economic relationships to the holidays and buying patterns uh, were actually going to change very much uh, post pandemic. Obviously, that's a, that's a, you know, that's a prediction. I could be wrong. But uh, that would uh, that would be my thought. Uh, last caller, uh, uh, I believe it's pronounced Emark. All right, Emark, are you with us? Can you hear me? I can. Me at the back of the line. How dare you, Mark? Can you hear me? I can. Oh, were you apologizing for putting me at the back of the line? I didn't catch no. it. No, I wasn't. <laughs> well, uh, Feliz Año Nuevo, my Kazar friend. How's it going? <laughs> uh, you know, CSC, how are you? Uh, yeah, pretty good. I was having a discussion um, with my family the other night. I wanted to run it by you. Sure. I jokingly said uh, to my cousin that I was going to teach my, my two children, my two two-and-a-half-year-old toddlers, as they grow up, I was going to teach them that you shouldn't steal, but it's okay to steal from large corporations uh-huh. if you want to. And <laughs> everyone people, everyone at the table reacted with, you know, kind of an eye-rolling, all right, Mark, whatever. And I was kind of just, you know, jacking around. But actually, then I started thinking about it. And, of course, I started arguing the position, even though I don't really have a strong position on it. And uh, I thought that I would just float it by you. Uh is it permissible morally to steal from a large corporation, not because you need it, but just because you, you saw something and you didn't want to pay for it? Uh, yeah, it's permissible morally, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's so pragmatically unwise that it's moral permissibility is barely relevant. I mean, sometimes you can do it, all right? Sometimes it's pretty easy. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think that uh, you know, I, I don't think Homer could have should have cut his cable at the end of the episode. <laughs> All right, so here let's walk. If you don't mind, walk. Let's walk sure, through sure. some of the uh, the the easy arguments that people give that you should even 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 people on the left would give that you shouldn't do this. For the first the first one, thank you, Siri. The first one is um, stealing is wrong. Okay. Right, stealing is wrong. That's an sure. instance of stealing, so it's wrong. Why? Why? Why is this an exception to that that general rule? Yeah, uh, stealing is wrong. I mean, I think that stealing is wrong is an interesting one because you think, well, okay. I mean, I, I know how this sounds, but uh, I'm going to say it anyway. Like, okay, but what's stealing? <laughs> right? Um, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> Somebody got a PhD in philosophy. I, I know. I, as I was about to say that, I was like, "Oh, goddamn it!" I know exactly how this sounds. But anyway, uh, yeah, right. I mean, like, like if because uh, if you think, well, okay, stealing, um, you know, if if that just means that you're you're taking something that that legally is is designated as as not you know as not being you know as not being your property. Uh, then uh, it's not at all clear to me that stealing is wrong. I mean, maybe right. it's usually wrong, right? 
Uh, but like that, that's that that would be enough to get like a real universal kind of prohibition on it. Um, and if it's, you know, if, if it's in, you know, stealing, you know, means taking stuff that is, uh, that like, you know, you, you know, that like the person you're taking it from should have, um, then yeah, I mean, stealing is wrong is, is true, but very uninformative. Um, and, and I think that like, and, and this is something that like comes up a, a little bit, like, um, I remember, God, one of the first debates I ever did was with Dave Smith uh, about mm. his, uh, his taxation theft. And, this is uh, the Brunig counter-maneuver, right? Yeah, yeah. What I've been saying is the Brunig counter-maneuver. And, right. and one of the points that, that Dave made in that conference, I think it was in that conversation. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, was, well, okay, well, hold on then. Uh, then, then, like... Um, why is it wrong to to just uh, you know to just steal from people like uh, you know if, if somebody's you know if somebody's like rich or whatever can you just mug them you know like like I'm not doing it justice because I I'm just like thinking about it as I'm talking but it was something like that and and I think you know and you know I I probably did not have a great answer in, in context and something that occurred to me later uh, was well hold on can't we just turn this around. Like if if taxation is theft, uh, then uh, then then why can't you know like you could just as easily say well why can't why in that case why isn't it okay for taxpayers to mug uh, government employees right like that they uh, that like mm. you can't just go out and reclaim your stolen property you know from anybody uh-huh. who's, uh, who's who's living off of uh, theft and that example at least suggests to me that like what we think is wrong from sort of street level stealing isn't um, you know, like that it, it, it can't be because like any normal libertarian would still think that it was wrong to do that. And, and any normal redistributionist would, would, would think it was wrong to, you know, to steal the normal case from, uh, you know, from somebody on the street, even if, you know, even if they had more than they should and, you know, et cetera. Um, then, okay, but we're not, we're not arguing with, with the libertarian here. We're, I'm having an argument with my normie family members who just think, no, no, no. Right, I understand. I'm being way I'm being way too convoluted about it. But the point is just like thinking about those that pair of examples suggests to me that the thing that we think is wrong with like mugging somebody um, isn't ultimately going to get down to a theory of property rights. It's going to mm-hmm. get down to something about the actual action of mugging. That's the thought. Uh, and so, if is if like stealing. Um, if what stealing means is like uh, you're, you know, you're not like, you know, stealing from a corporation means like you're, you know, you walk into McDonald's and like hold up the person at the cash register, uh, then, uh, then, then like, sure, that could be straightforwardly wrong for like whatever reason, like just mugging somebody on the street is wrong. But stealing from a corporation means that in, you know, in some way that you can easily get away with, you've, uh, you know, you've taken stuff that legally belongs to that corporation, then, you know, I think it's at least plausible that where our strongest stealing is wrong intuitions come from don't really cover that. Because it does not, uh, the Snickers bar doesn't rightfully belong to the Walmarts that I just took it from. Yeah. Well, also because like the kind of like, okay. So there, it could be that like stealing in the sense of like mugging somebody or our property or something like that. That's just like a, 
a bad thing to do for to a person, you know, for reasons that have nothing to do with whether that person has a particularly good moral claim on the uh, yeah. on the the property in question, and that then like if you're stealing in the sense, you know, but if you're stealing like in a, in like a shoplifting kind of way, for example, then like, if that's morally wrong, it could be, um, you know, it, it's like that, like might actually depend a little bit more on, on uh, considerations, like whether the, you know, the entity you're stealing from has a good claim on it or whatever. And it's, it's plausible that we just, uh, if we just shouldn't have, uh, if we just shouldn't have like big corporations or whatever, then, then it's it's plausible they don't really have a good claim on it, and if and there might also be other moral considerations that would be relevant if it was like a small shopkeeper that yeah, if it was a small if if my kid st- stole the Snickers from a, a small shop, I would you know, send them back and I'd be upset with them. But yeah, if it's Target, right? I'd tell my <laughs> yeah, kid yeah. for, for practical yeah. reasons, but I don't know that I'd feel I'd feel like he did something morally wrong. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there. I'm right there with you. I, I think, like, as as a, as a good parent, you should be like, that was a really dumb risk to take. Don't do that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but what, uh, wait, what, so if, if we're talking about not, if we're talking about the wrongness of Walmart, not in terms of, not in terms of the property rights, but uh, yeah. here's another, here's one of the arguments that I actually did get was, um, yeah, but look. Uh, oh, hold on. I, we, I lost you for a second. You hear me now? Yeah, last thing I heard was not in terms of property rights. Yeah, you know, so like the wrongness, it doesn't boil down to property rights. It's something else that makes it wrong. What about the harm that you potentially do to uh, employees uh, of the of the great of the corporation that you steal from? Yeah, right. Uh, that seems like a more plausible place to go for uh, for moral wrongness if you're stealing from like a big profitable corporation. And then I guess, I guess maybe, I mean at least first thought, like maybe that gets you that it's like wrong in certain instances, but not others, depending on whether realistically you're going to be causing harms to, to those employees. Yeah. So if it has to be big enough, is that if it, the corporation's big enough, it, it, you, it's no, there's no wrongdoing. Well, I mean, that could be one thing that would like dictate whether or not they're going to be wrongs to those employees. Cause if it's like, you know, cause if it's like a really cor- if it, you know, it's a really big corporation and you're just stealing a little, you know, that's, uh, but it's, it's like also, I don't know. Like I was wondering about this too. Cause like, I think about the, um, like, okay. And granted you could say, well, if everybody, you know, stole from the big corporation, then, that it would, you know, then it really would have all these harms to the employees. But, but that like, would be awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, also though, like, if everybody just shopped from a rival corporation that would have those harms, you know, yeah, right. the, the employees, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure how, I'm not sure how far that takes you. And plus if, if everybody is, you know, I mean, if we're really imagining a situation where like nobody respects the, uh, you know, the property rights, of the big corporation, that it kind of sounds to me like we have a revolution and, you know, and it actually works out to be a good thing. Yeah. I, I tried to, I, I tried to, uh, making the the counter argument i tried to like frame it in terms of well you know what if, what if you're what if you're a peasant and the local the lord uh won't let you um hunt on his land and you go and poach on his land and by doing so you actually do you know he doesn't have property rights the property rights doesn't enter into it but it might actually harm like some of the people who work for the lord uh but it doesn't seem it's not clear to me that you have obligations in those situations to like 
maintain or honor that unjust system, even if by not honoring it, you do harm innocent people? Yeah. Um... Because my intuition with the local lord poaching stuff from his land is like, well, sorry if I hurt other people, but he has no right to that stuff, and I'm hungry. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe maybe the response would be you've loaded the dice a little bit because you're because you're hungry, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the, yeah. If, you, if you just like if it's just like a uh, if you just kind of want it, then you know maybe you get to the, the same place, but it's a little bit less clear. I I think um, I mean I guess like one case that I was just thinking about is that does come up in, in real life, you know, not vanishingly and frequently um, where like the sort of pra- pragmatic self-interested reasons not to don't really enter into it is like, if you're, um, if you are shopping, you know, in fact, from a big corporation and like the cashier uh, accidentally shortchanges you, then my intuition would be that morally you should, you should let them know, right. You know, you shouldn't just like, uh, or no, not that mm-hmm. they shortchange you, but that they like give you too much change or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, because in that case, it does seem like the harms to the employee uh, seems yeah. like a good reason because like they have to like balance out the the cash payments yeah. at the end, and you know you're screwing them over in a way that you really shouldn't, you know. But um, but if, but like, if they're wearing a MAGA shirt while they're checking you out, then you, oh, you, right. Well, then it becomes more interesting case. Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> God, uh, you know there probably are like there probably are like asshole liberals who actually do, you know, who actually oh, yeah, do totally, totally, totally. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, yeah. That, that seems that seems like a counterproductive principle, but yeah, uh, that's yeah. I mean, I, I think that like in that case, yeah, but like in the in the, if it's just like maybe ultimately if enough people do what you're doing, it's going to cause some level of harm to the employees because, uh, because like eventually it'll be bad enough for the corporation's bottom line. That the corporation will take it out of them. That doesn't, that seems like a lot less impressive to me because again, you could apply that to, I mean, you could literally just apply that to like, you know, cooking for yourself instead of going out to, to eat. It's the, it's that same problem with the move to rural utilitarianism has, when you talk about like voting third party, right? Mm-hmm. This, this, this kind of in a bit, a bit of inside baseball, but like, you know, the argument is you, you shouldn't vote for Nader because if uh, not because your vote's going to make a difference, but because if other people do that, then that would make a bad difference off Florida. Um, but it, yeah. seems, it seems like you've got to draw an arbitrary line there because it actually, if, everyone did that or if everyone who was so inclined did it it would it would be worth it might be worth the cost yeah i mean like like and that's a really interesting one to revisit because you know people are listening who you know like this is the first time they're hearing this um this is a argument i used to love uh that you know people would uh, cause I, I used to be very adamant about voting third party and, and, and people would, would say really utilitarianish things, you know, well, what if, you know, well, if enough people did that, that would lead to a bad result. It's like, well, okay, but, uh, why is that, you know, you know, if, if just I do it, it's not going to, and if, and if everybody did it, that would actually be the best result. Uh, so, so what's the principle that says like, you should only do what you think, you know, 
what you want, you know, 5% you know, right. of, the, uh, of the voters to do. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that like, um, I don't really, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah, I, I think about activists sometimes because it's like now I'm, I'm much less, uh, you know, sympathetic to the conclusion. I think if you're, um, you know, I think if you're in a, uh, uh, I think if you're in a swing state, you know, it, it probably does make sense to, uh, to you, you know, usually, you know, hold your nose and, uh, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and, and vote for the lesser evil. But, um, but I don't, you know, I also do think like I wouldn't want to. Even now, though, I wouldn't want to take that too far because because I think the last thing you said about the worth the risk thing also does kind of seem right to me that it's like if you. Like, look, it's, I remember Michael Brooks saying this, it's totally possible to imagine a situation about third party voting or whatever that really was like, okay, high risk, high risk, but also high reward. Yeah. So like, yeah, sure. You know, maybe roll the dice, you know, yeah. it's just like, yeah. as, a, as a matter of fact, we're not really in that right now. Right. So, um, and probably I think there's no political strategy that's possible if you don't do some kind of weird thing where you try to adjust your behavior to how you realistically expect most people will act or something like that. But, uh, there, there's some, there's some like authority, um, like the, I, I think there's some like messy conceptual stuff about how to think about that, that I, I just haven't thought enough about. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it's been interesting to see you change your tune a little bit over the course of your political evolution from, um, totally guiltless third party voting to your kind of um, your more practical stance now, uh, given that I know what your I know some of your arguments about that form of reasoning, but I, I, I suspect that you're, you don't have a principled line to draw exactly there. It just kind of seems like the right, the right way to approach the problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. I, I mean, I also, I don't know, I guess I feel like, I mean, this is not a, this is definitely not a principled line kind of thing. I mean, this is just a sort of rough and, you know, intuitive reaction, but it's like, I don't know. I also kind of feel like a lot of that, like, I, I feel like there's a sort of model for how you think about what voting is that I think I used to be very prone to. That's kind of like expressive, right? This is, I want to show, you know, I want to, uh, you know, you know, for the record, you know, this is me. Um, I'm a communist dad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. and like, and I guess the way I, I prefer to think about it now is it's just like, you know, I mean, I've used this kind of metaphor a bunch of times, but it's like, I don't know, you're in like a, you know, like you're in a horror movie and like the villain has like set up some kind of awful choice or whatever. <laughs> that, uh, you know, you have to, open this door and this monster is going to come out or, you know, go through that, you know, whatever. Like, it's like, or, uh, well, what would you, would you say in that situation? It's like, no, I refuse on principle to play your, your game jigsaw, you know, <laughs> Let, what happens, you know? <laughs> or would you make whatever choice you thought you were more likely to survive? If ever there was a more, a, an apt metaphor for this stage of capitalism that we're in, it's, it's the Saw franchise. Fair enough. Well, uh, I, 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 I think I think we settled this. I think you should teach your children uh, to to be to be thieves, or you know, if you shouldn't, uh, that should mostly be for pragmatic reasons. Yeah. Okay, that's good. I'll, I'll call in uh, next week. I have some questions about murder. 
All right. Nice. Nice. Looking forward to it. All right. Happy, All right. happy New Year, man. All right. Happy New Year, Mark. Bye. Bye. All right. Uh, so before I go for today, I uh, just, uh, just want to um, – just want to say a couple things uh, real quickly at the end. One is that the new philosophy substack, uh, Philosophy for the People, since and this is an appropriate plug to do because uh, so much of this ended up being philosophy heavy today, uh, that the new substack, uh, which you know launched with an announcement post uh, earlier this week uh, on um, Tuesday, I think, but the first real uh, post the first real essay is going up tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. West Coast, 11 a.m. East Coast, uh, and then I am going to be um, well. I'm going to be talking about these every week on YouTube uh, on This Is Revolution, but we're going to cross stream it to uh, uh, to give them an argument uh, with uh, Stefan Bertram Lee on. Um, Sunday afternoons at uh, 1 p.m. West Coast, 4 p.m. East Coast. Uh, normally, those are going to be live. We had to pre-record the first one, uh, so we already did that, but uh, look out for that. Um, so the essay is going to be uh, 11 Eastern uh, tomorrow morning, uh, Sunday morning, and the, uh, the YouTube discussion is going to be 4 Eastern uh, tomorrow afternoon. Uh, so look out for that. Uh, just as a reminder, there are tickets available for the live show that um, the Give Them an Argument slash Left Reckoning slash uh, This Is Revolution live show going on in New York with Sam Cedar and Bhaskar Sankara and Emma Vigland. Uh, that's on January 22nd at the Cutting Room. And I will put a link uh, in the description for this uh, to where you can uh, where you can buy tickets uh, for, uh, for that. Um, and then finally, uh, just as a recap, and for anybody who came in uh, late, uh, said that going into 2023, I want to approach the Colin show a little bit differently. Uh, and uh, because I want it to be more collar driven than it has been, I want people to know that there's a sort of stable, consistent time when it's going to be whenever I can. And that's going to be 4 p.m. West Coast, 7 p.m. East Coast. Um, most days, uh, I'm sure, of course, there'll be lots of days when I can't do it. In fact, there are going to be a few days next week when I'm not going to be able to do it because I'm going to be traveling. But, um, you know, I'll post something and say, hey, can't do a college today or not going to be able to do a college for the next three days or whatever. But otherwise, the standing default is uh, is it's going to be at 7, uh, 7 Eastern. Uh, and I will uh, – so I will see people at, um, you know – 7 uh, Eastern tomorrow. 